am Himmel, du, wir wandern beide, grüß dich zu. Ich ernst und trüb, du mild und rein, was mag der Unterschied wohl sein? Hello, everyone. Welcome to our podcast, Take Note. I'm your host, Jennifer West. I'd like to begin this podcast by acknowledging that I'm situated as a settler on the unceded and ancestral lands of the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Indigenous groups across Turtle Island have been discussing music since time immemorial, and we honor that today. My guest today is across the pond <laughs> in London, and he is none other than pianist and award-winning broadcaster Ian Burnside. Welcome to our podcast. How are you doing today? Yeah, good, thanks, Jennifer. Yeah, can't complain. Wonderful. So we always like to start by having a few fun rapid-fire questions um, that are sometimes musically related and sometimes absolutely silly and fun. So our first question is, if you were to be able to travel anywhere now without restriction... Where would you like to go? <laughs> oh, uh, uh, the time, not time travel, geographically travel. Geographically. Uh, I'd like to go to the island of Lamu in Kenya, where I went last New Year and uh, stayed in a wonderful hut by the Indian Ocean and swam every day. Wow, that sounds lovely. <laughs> now, you've prompted me to ask, where would you time travel to? Oh, uh, oh, where would I time travel to? Uh, uh, Vienna in the 1820s and uh, go and hang out with Schubert in the coffee houses and get drunk together. <laughs> I think that I would be wonderful. Play the old thing and discuss the meaning of life in my schoolboy journey. That would be amazing. I think if I were to time... Oh, go ahead. Um, if... Go ahead. Paris in the 1920s wouldn't be bad either. La Belle Epoque, a little go. bit after La Belle Epoque, yeah. yes. And then after, after all the war had died down a bit, but yeah, I think that could be fun. That would be oh, amazing. Berlin, Berlin at the same time, it would be a bit naughtier, but that would be fun too, yeah. Well, if you were in Paris at that time, you might have met Hemingway. Indeed. And I think if I were to travel in time, I'd like to be at the Ed Sullivan show when the Beatles first came to America. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Very specific. That would be something. That would be something. <laughs> um, so, after a concert, what is your favorite meal? Oh, I don't like eating after concerts. I'd rather eat. I, I'd like to eat a bit before a concert and then uh, drink after the concert. My favorite meal is beer. Uh, and maybe favorite meal is beer. Yeah, after a concert, only beer will do. Okay. Well, if you come to perform in Vancouver, we have some wonderful craft beers we can introduce you to. Can't wait. <laughs> um, I don't like to so, have an empty stomach. I, I need food. I need food to uh, get through the evening. You know, there's there seems to be a real split between musicians. There's musicians who cannot eat before they play or they get sick. So, there's and musicians singers, yeah, and singers. Singers, I think singers have d different issues to deal with. They don't want to be burping through Interizer. No. Um, speaking of Winterreise, I just watched your amazing performance from Wigmore Hall, 
with four different singers performing this cycle. Um, first of all, it was absolutely beautiful. And as a pianist, as you can see behind me, I can't imagine having to play with four different singers on one journey and thinking of like their voice types. Um, I don't know if you had to change like the key structure um, or even just their breathing. How did you manage that project? It sounds fascinating. Well, well, uh, just to put it in context, the reason we were doing this, this was the project of a young tenor here called David Webb, uh, who was wanting to draw attention to a mental health uh, charity that he's very involved with. And so he got the idea, uh, it, it was specifically about men's mental health, not, not that we're in any way denying women's rights to that same, uh, mm -hmm. uh, same uh, area. Anyway, uh, he, he got a whole bunch of his pals together and uh, so this is why this rather unusual concept took place. Um, it, yeah, we had to monkey around with keys and um, I, the, the, uh, the, the wonderful app Fourscore came to my rescue. I spent many happy hours cutting and pasting and juggling around different orders. Anyway, we got there in the end and well, in terms of breathing, no, I mean, you just take what you're given. You, you deal with what comes along on the platform and they're all lovely guys and we had great fun and they were very mutually supportive. It was a lovely atmosphere and, uh, and uh, we're carrying on the beer theme. The only pity was that afterwards we couldn't all go to the pub together. I mean, it's the, one of the awful things about lockdown is, I mean, it's fantastic to have the opportunity of still performing even in a streamed way, even to an empty hall and Wigmore Hall has been fantastic. They've, they've, been absolutely leading the field here and they've made the hall available and <clears throat> that was fantastic but it's so weird after you've done a performance you do the elbow thing and say well bye because there's nothing else you can't even go and have a coffee together because it's not allowed and that's a bit miserable we've all it is miserable do you have the same and, thing there um, we don't actually in my province in Columbia, we have indoor dining, schools are open. Um, we do have a pretty high case number. Um, and the official provincial rules are you're not supposed to socialize with people outside of three close friends, work, and your immediate family. Um, to the degree that people are doing that, it's all very up in the air. But I know London has tier four restrictions. Oh, no, no, we're past that now. We're, we're in a different place from tier four restrictions. We're in a stricter lockdown than that, yeah. Stricter lockdown, so it's it's really quite difficult. And of course, after Winterreise with a bunch of pals, you want to have a beer. <laughs> oh, you need it. You need it. <laughs> um, and you do. And what was remarkable to me is that during Gute Nacht, they kept walking out behind, and they had like this little bit of choreography. Um, and you know, Schubert is so insistent with this walking eighth note rhythm. And to see them walking to take their part of the journey and to sing a strophe was pretty incredible. So yeah, I'm so glad you appreciated it. I'm very happy. I'll pass it on to the lads. <laughs> Please do. Um, and like you said, Wigmore Hall has been doing an amazing job. Um, I have Pavel Kolosnikov's recital uh, queued and ready to go for my Sunday afternoon listening after this. Um, very good. But, oh, can't wait. Um, so tell me, out of the three major Schubert cycles, do you have a favorite? Oh, uh, no, no. I, I love them all in different ways. Um, I mean, yeah, they're all just so different. And, and 
I mean, the cliched answer would be to say, yeah, my favorites, whichever one I'm doing at that particular moment. Uh, I love them all in different ways and they're mutually complementary. One, one leads to insights in the others. And Schwann and Gesang, as we know, isn't really a cycle. And I, I've done some, I've done, a, I've done quite a lot of work in that and from different contexts. And, and so I feel I have a different relationship with that piece somehow. Um, but no, they're all just great masterpieces and um, imbued with sadness in different ways so that his life was so, um, so circumscribed and, but you know, it's 31. true. Yeah. 31. I know when I think of that, um, it's so poignant to me. Um, and I wanted to tell you about this painting behind me because when oh. I, when I purchased this in 2012, I saw it at our local art university's um, grad exhibition and the painter was about 21 and I had brought my father along and I said, dad, it's Winterheiser. And he said, it's a what? <laughs> I said, it's the winter's journey by Schubert. I said, this is the wanderer. And I said, I have to have this painting because this is, this is Schubert. Um, and he said, well, it looks depressing. Are you sure you want to live with that? So um, I guess nine years later, I'm still living with it, but I definitely feel like this character behind me is is going through that journey for sure. Um, my next question is, I was first introduced to your work through your Rachmaninoff album. Oh, yeah. How many singers were on that album? There were so many. Oh, I think, uh, oh, two sopranos, one mezzo, one tenor, two baritones, uh, six. Yes. And if my memory serves correctly, they were all native Russian speakers? Yeah, that's right. They weren't all actually technically all Russian. I mean, Justina uh, the Mezzo is Lithuanian. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think a couple of uh, Ukrainians might have squeezed in there. Uh, but that's all, <laughs> part of, that's all part of the fun. And uh, one of them is half Armenian. Uh, yes. So there's, there, but, but yes, um, they all come from, let's say, the former Soviet republics, now proudly independent. And uh, yeah, so they're all native speakers. Do you think that, um, especially for Russian repertoire, because <laughs> I've just a year ago started taking voice lessons um, to become a better musician overall. And uh, a lot of my piano students say, oh, I want to learn how to sing a little bit at the end of every lesson. I thought, well, good, we should. Do you think knowing Russian in particular helps, um, like on a native fluency level, helps to sing it better? Because it just seems like the most difficult language to sing. Yeah, I think it is. It's very difficult to sing. Uh, uh, the, yeah, the answer to that is clearly yes. Um, mm. uh, it, it is hard. The, there's all sorts of nuances which are just. I mean, I'm, I I struggle with the Russian language. I, I mean, I, I have some Slavonic background, but but mm. but you know, the sounds are just very alien, and and uh, of course the alphabet. And it, yeah, it takes a lot of getting used to. Because I notice in our conservatory syllabus. We have many options of French, Italian, German, and Spanish songs, but they don't put a lot of Russian songs in there because I think they just assume this is too difficult. <laughs> well, and it is, it's hard, but um, for singers, you know, if if you want to be an opera singer, then Eugene Onegin is probably going to crop up at some point or the Queen of Spades. And, and then there's Czech as well. Yana Czech is now standard repertoire, really. Mm -hmm. The singers have a lot to deal with and uh, it's a big, it's a, a big digestion process. Now, would you compare the difficulty of the piano part of these Rachmaninoff songs with his solo repertoire? Is it pretty similar? Because when I've looked through it, these are pretty tricky piano parts too. 
yeah, they are. But uh, no, I wouldn't. I, I, I honestly, they're not. They're not as hard as the the, the toughest of the, certainly not. If you look at the concerti, I mean, that's a different level of pianism. I, what's so grateful about the Rachmaninoff is that um, uh, is that they're so beautifully written. And uh, sure, the the tough ones are tough, but uh, but they always sound tough. So you're getting lots of bang for your buck. Um, I also did a project on Metner songs. And uh, if uh, Sasha Kapeyev is watching this, who's also just released it, Metner Diskin is a great Metner authority. The, one of the, there is. Is, uh, the, the, the Metner and Rachmaninoff were friends, but the cliched thing which I now say, if anyone asks, if anyone's remotely interested in this, is that the lovely thing about Rachmaninoff is he tends to sound harder than he is. The, the, the piano parts lie so beautifully under the fingers. In marked contrast to Metner, even when he's writing slow songs, which just seem to be a series of chords, they're incredibly uncomfortable and actually really tricky. And the tricky ones, boy, are they hard. And you can practice for weeks and months. And at the end, everyone says, oh, yeah, that was nice. But they, they don't sound like anything. <laughs> and the Rachmaninoff gets big applause. <laughs> oh, Mark, he's brilliant at just making the piano sing. And he, he's just such, a, a, such a, an incredible technician, yeah. He is. Now, I'm, I'm always thinking of Schubert's leaders. He's, if you had to ask me to pick a favorite composer, it would probably be Schubert. But I have to ask, how pivotal do you think was Andi Fernagelipt in the development of Lieder? Did this influence Schubert? Uh, yes, I think, I think it did. I think um, there's a direct, there's a direct um, a journey from Andi Fernagelipt into the... Rellstab settings in Schwanengesang um, that, that I think you can make a strong case that he wrote those rather in response to Andy van der Gilipte, that he was he was making a, a similar sort of collection. Yeah, no, I think I think Schubert was so in awe of Beethoven and all, all his works. And you can also argue, Graham Johnson has written very beautifully about this, that, that Schubert up to that point probably thought, well, Beethoven's King of the Castle in symphonies, piano sonatas, string quartets, uh, he's won and only opera, you name it, he's done it. But song's my thing. And then Andy Fernagelipte comes along and he does this very novel thing where he ties it into one single journey and he brings the last song back, the first song back at the end. And and Schubert sort of does head pump and thinks, damn, is there nothing <laughs> I can do better? But, yeah, uh, that's that was my last one. <laughs> Say again? And what am I left with after that? You know, um, and Brahms lived under uh, this shadow of this guy here, Mr. Beethoven, um, and he lived under that shadow when he tried to compose his symphonies. He he didn't know how to. He said famously, "How do I write the tenth symphony?" Sure. So there's this big legacy. Um, now you were you have quite an extended discography of collaborative piano. Um, but if I were to ask you, what solo repertoire do you like playing? And um, are there solo pieces that you're working on right now for fun that you enjoy? Well, that's a very good question. Um, uh, I tend to I tend to go back to hmm, in lockdown. Funnily enough, I, when the lockdown first started, I I couldn't touch the piano. I had a month where I hardly played it. And I just kept thinking of the nice concerts that were cancelled and everything. And then I came back to it. But instead of playing any of the things which I would have been performing had they not all been cancelled, 
I, I, I learned some new piano pieces. And funnily enough, I, I worked on some Rachmaninoff etude tableau, which I thought were, which I love and which are good for getting your fingers moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and since then, I tend to go back to the same, same old pieces that I know are, are good for me. I do play quite a lot of etudes, actually, when I'm doing solo things. I don't play them particularly well or particularly fast or bravurally. Uh, but I I do go back to them because they the, there's nothing like them for keeping you in shape. But um, but of late I've been practicing a lot of chamber music because I think I'm I, I this is still a bit under wraps and I, I can't make a drum roll announcement. But I'm in the process of forming a chamber group and so that's been keeping me busy in terms of uh, piano practice. So exciting. Also, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's good. Does it involve trio music? <laughs> possibly comment. Watch this I'll let we'll, you know. Please let us know. We'll be watching on Twitter. Great. <laughs> now, you know, most pianists don't start as collaborative pianists. So tell us about your journey from, you know, uh, being a student, piano student, and was there a particular piece or concert that moved you to being more in the collaborative world? How did that work? There is a, yeah, there, there was an absolutely pivotal moment, which was, it all happened by accident. I, I had been at the, I, I'd studied, I'd been to university, then I went to Royal Academy, and I did a little voice and piano there, but I mostly did solo stuff and uh, instrumental chamber music. I played for one singer, a very nice American mezzo. And then I had two years in Warsaw, I was in Poland, where it was just Chopin, 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 and that, which was very good for me. And I did some chamber music for fun and played for a couple of singers for fun, but never really thought very much about it. And then when I came back to Britain and started kind of freelancing, I was completely broke. I was, I was teaching some very untalented children. I was playing for ballet classes and just doing any concerts that came along. And one of the people I worked with was a, a fellow Scot, an oboist called Douglas Boyd, who's now a wonderful conductor. And he invited me to play in a charity concert in Aldborough. And I went there and he said, look, can you play a solo piece in the middle to give me a bit of a rest? I said, sure. So I played the Schubert B-flat impromptu. And to my horror, in the middle of the front row was Peter Peters at this uh, this recital. No way. Oh, yeah, he was sitting there. It was quite informal, but there oh. he was in the front row. And then, and I think, oh, yeah, well, maybe this isn't a good time to mess up the Schubert. So, you know, just concentrate. So uh, at the end, he came up and he was terribly nice. And he said he'd enjoyed the concert. And he said, well, you know, we're doing... Um, courses now at uh, uh, in Old, uh, Snape uh, at the Britain Beers School um, he said um, and we're looking for pianists might you be interested in playing for my master classes and I said oh I, I would love to do that wow. and, then, and then he said do you know the Britain songs and I couldn't have named you not only could I not have played you one Britain song I couldn't have named you one I knew absolutely nothing about that but I said oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah I love them I, I knew that this was not the moment for honesty. And I went out and bought some Britain songs and then they rang me up and confirmed the dates. And so I then got into playing for, I started playing for um, classes at the Britain Peers School, which was just an amazing education because uh, not only was I learning English, French, German repertoire, but you, you know, playing for Peers' classes, also for uh, Gérard Souze, Ukweno, Suzanne Donko, Hans Hotter, um, and also some marvelous instrumental things with William Pleath, the great cello teacher William Pleath, Ruggiero Ricci, um, fantastic opportunities. So, and from that, I also met lots of uh, 
people my own age who were singers who were uh, you know post conservatoire were getting going and made some um, made some duos with them and then started getting work. And as is the way in the musical world, once you get known for doing something, no one ever asks you to do anything else. So, um, it's true. At, at no point did I sit down and make a conscious decision that this was what I was going to do. But I've always loved I've always loved the human voice. I've always been interested in languages and in poetry. So in retrospect, it makes sense. But if I can also just point out that, of course, there's a very strong Canadian connection with um, through um, Bruce and Stephen and, and their Oldbrook connection. But through them, a lot of Canadian, I met made lots of Canadian friends. I met Jerry Finney when he was there, um, Nancy Argenta, um, um, Adrian Pichonka has become a great pal later on. And, yeah. you know, it, it was a rite of passage for that generation of Canadian singers to come and, and do a bit of opera, and uh, it was a wonderful thing. Gerald Finley, he's a treasure of ours. <laughs> and so and, is Adrian. Uh, and Brett Polagato I've worked with, who uh, who's singing, I, I adore. He's, of course, a younger generation. But he flies the Canadian flag very proudly and uh, with great distinction. It's a wonderful artist. That's that's so cool to hear. And um, I can't imagine being in a master class with Peter Pierce. Was he a kind teacher? Oh, oh, too kind. Yes, if anything. Oh, he was. Yes, he was lovely. And, and he he always was. Uh, he always found the good in people. Actually, and he was always prepared to be moved. In, in a funny way, he he was very uncritical. Um, yeah, it's hard to put into words. He, yeah, he was very gentlemanly, and he was—he was, he was very—he um, he would never put students down. I mean, some of, some of those great figures that I've mentioned could be really mean and throw their weight around. And if they didn't think someone was good, would not hesitate to, you know, put the boot in. But Peter, Peter was never like that, and he wanted the atmosphere there to be very collegial. And um, when we did auditions for the school. It was sometimes quite funny because we would do days and days of auditions and uh, and uh, singers would come and go and sing for five or six minutes and then go out. And we'd all get silly towards the end of the day and the school administrator and I would be in the room with Peter and uh, Nancy Evans, who was also part of the thing. And a singer would come in and, and then leave the room and we'd go, oh, that was dreadful. That was so awful. And Peter, Peter would go, <laughs> would say, oh, I... I thought she was rather lovely. I think she has something special. So he would always find oh. that we'd be, we'd be squirming and he'd, he'd find the good. And, and that was wonderful to see. So he was very gentlemanly like that. If you had to sum up um, some of his taught musical lessons that you absorbed or the participants absorbed in his classes, what wisdom, musical wisdom, would you pass on? Hmm. Ooh. Well... I don't know. Yeah, I think when you when you put it in those terms, it's it's very hard to actually pin things down uh, in that sense because um, so much of the so much of the value. This is going to sound like a real cop out answer, but so much of the value of being around those people was just being around them. It wasn't necessarily that they had in, individual ge gems of wisdom, and and of course in the masterclass situation. You're never going to teach someone to sing or to play the piano in, in an hour, or even if it's an hour a day for a week. That's never, you know, those people, you know, Nancy Argenta knew how she wanted to sing when she was in opera, okay? And she knew how to do it. And she'd been very well taught in Canada. Uh, so it's not a question of learning how to sing. 
or being given particular stylistic precepts. It's really, it's sort of breathing the air that these people live in and hearing the stories and putting it all together and, and just watching how they watching how they do it. I know that sounds a terrible cop-out, but... Um, no, I think it, because you can absorb, this will sound very new agey, but you can absorb that energy. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. And, and there are parts of, of course, with Piers very directly, he's part of a performing tradition. Uh, you couldn't get more of a performing tradition. But, the, you know, uh, Suze and Donko and the French repertoire, you know, were within, if you think where their lifetimes span from and do the sort of maths from there, then with, if they're talking about Poulenc, you know, and Ukraino having worked with all these great people, with Boulanger and people, you know, it just gives an authority to everything they say. But there was a famous, there was one moment that I've quoted quite a lot uh, when Peter was, uh, when there was an American singer um, preparing On This Island of Britain. And the first song of that, Let the Florid Music Praise, I don't know if you've ever played that one. It's a kind of great poem and, uh, uh, by W.H. Auden. And this girl said, she sang it and um, Peter discussed a bit about it. And then, and then she said, Sir Peter, can I just ask? And she came to, she came to one line and she said, what does that mean? And Peter just paused and then said, well, my dear, Winston could be obscure. And that was um, really amazing because, in other words, who knows? He didn't know. He, But, you know, what does any poem mean? It's a poem because it's a poem. You can't just right. pin it down and nail uh, it to the floor. So there's something quite wonderful about someone of Piers' stature being able to admit that and sort of shrug his shoulders a bit. And keeping that aspect of mystery <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Um, I want to also, turn... Also, your guess is as good as mine is another way of saying that. I mean, he's he's saying that there's that line of poetry, make of it what you can, and it'll mean yeah. different things to different people at different times of their life. And my voice teacher, if you're listening, Dr. Bob, I, I have been absorbing. <laughs> um, he's always saying, um, live the text and bring the text to life. Um, so I actually want to ask you, as a pianist, um, what's your relationship to the text when you're preparing for a song recital? Ooh, well, uh, well, I hope it's a close relationship. I mean, I think, I think it has to be uh, the starting point of any uh, serious study of song or a song cycle. You, you know, these works all began with a composer lying in bed at night with his little book of poetry, flicking through, thinking, yeah, I don't like that one, don't like that one. Ooh, that, oh, that's got something. Ooh, and maybe that one will go with this one. And, you know, in the beginning was the word. It starts from there. And, and I think if we can think back into that position uh, and think into the composer's shoes a bit, then then um, to something interesting. So, um, do I always know... Do I always know the exact meaning of every single word I play? Uh, in, in, in most languages, yes. In Russian, I, I can tell if it's a noun or a verb, but I, I wouldn't swear in the Bible that I could go through every Rachmaninoff song and translate every word. Does that make me an evil person? Yes, probably. So <laughs> it comes and goes. And, and also different, you know, you look at things like some of the Poulenc cycle setting, Paul Eloir, for example, that... Again, Wiston could be obscure, well, so could Eluar. I mean, some of those poems are very tough and you have to live with them in a different way and, and kind of niggle them and 
work around them. So I, it's it's a bit contextual. What I'm interested in also, though, is uh, I'm interested in the way uh, that uh, so many great poems don't make great songs, and so many not particularly great poems can make sensationally good songs. And I mean, the, the Schubert cycles are full of examples of that, which is not to belittle Wilhelm Müller, the poet of... Or Heine, or Goethe, or Schiller. But, but those are great poets. Where, where Müller is not a great poet, but he's a fine poet, and he touched something off in Schubert, and he, his poems leave enough room for Schubert to come in, whereas Goethe was in a different level poetically. Yes, of course, he inspired great music too, but it's a different thing. So that, that whole push-me-pull-you uh, tension is something that uh, it doesn't necessarily alter how you play it, but mm-hmm. I think it's an interesting thing to think about. So speaking of Schubert, um, he wrote over 600 songs for voice and piano, which is just an incredible output for such a young life. Do we see his development as a composer through those songs? And if so, what do we notice? Uh, Well, yes, I think we do, Uh, which isn't to say that they get better. Uh, I agree. Some of the early ones are pretty great. Some of the early ones are absolutely incredible. And and also, uh, you know, what is a great song? You can have a great strophic song. Uh, even at the end of his life, um, have you played Herbst, which is an, a Rellstab song which didn't make it into what we know as Schwanengesang. It was written at the same time in the last year of his life. That's a strophic song, uh, three verses, absolutely a miracle. Uh, just an absolutely great song. But what makes it great? It's hard to put your finger on it. And um, again, I've been I've been very influenced by Graham Johnson in this because, of course, he's done this huge encyclopedic study. It's three volume book. The songs he's recorded all of them. He he knows as much about Schubert as any living sentient being. Yes. And and, and he said that when he was doing the recording of all six hundred, he he said that truly, in even the slightest looking ones or the most flawed ones there was always some element of DNA. There was always something in there which made him sit up and think, oh, yes, of course, yeah, he is a great composer. And and I think if you approach it with that with that humility, then you can always find things. And the great thing with having 600 is that, uh, you know, unless you're grim, you can't possibly know them all. And so you can still be making discoveries. If you're old and bald, as I now am, there are still discoveries, wonderful discoveries made. And, uh, and that's great. And even songs that I did years and years ago, you come back to them and realize you had underestimated them. Or The other thing is that there are so many different ways of singing the songs in general and leader in particular. Um, different singers bring such different qualities to them. And um, so the, the great thing about being in what's essentially quite a promiscuous job and having multiple partners is, is that different light gets shared in different ways. And, Different singers will be passionate about songs that they've discovered or that they can feel they can sign their name to or identify with. And, and that can that can just give a, a, a different flavor. And I, I love seeing that process in action. It is a wonderful process. And I know I've really enjoyed um I've worked with mainly two two or three pianists mainly, and it's it's been pretty cool to experience that, and they each bring their own different um, interpretations and it's really quite special um, and you really become a unit and I've focused a lot on solo piano and um, which I love but 
it's quite something to feel that unit as a singer and pianist together. Um, I want to move on to your role as a broadcaster, um, which I didn't realize until I did a bit of research. Um, and I've always been a huge BBC fan since like university years, and I won't say how long ago that was. <laughs> um, and when I visit London, I always walk by Broadcasting House. What's it really like inside Broadcasting House? Well, well, now there are two broadcasting houses. There's a big modern extension. There's the old one, and then there's a big shiny new one, which was built at the cost of, I don't know, a billion pounds or something ridiculous, which is where all the new stuff happens and, and all the high-tech, exciting stuff. Yeah, it's wonderful, and it's full of, um, it's full of um, interesting, creative people. And, uh, yeah. And this is going to be, this might spark some controversy, heaven forbid. Um, what is the importance and role of public broadcasting for classical music? Oh, well, I mean, the first the first thing that has to be said is that the BBC, well, the BBC is funded by a, a license. I don't know how familiar you are with this. And at the moment, it is politically controversial because um, our conservative government is of rather unkeen on the BBC and uh, with Mr. Murdoch lurking behind them is uh, trying really to clip its wings and is always saying what bad value the the um, license fee is. But actually for classical music alone, Radio 3 is its classical music station. Yes. And, and it funds five orchestras and a choir before you get on to anything else. So there's BBC Symphony, BBC Concert Orchestra, BBC National Orchestra of Wales, BBC Scottish Symphony, and um, BBC Philharmonic in Manchester. So not only in London, where there are two orchestras based, but in different parts of the country, it mm -hmm. does incredible work, incredible work, employing uh, five different orchestras and the BBC Singers, which is its choir. So even before you look at the work Radio 3 does as a channel, as a broadcaster, you know, it's an incredible sponsor. And then the proms, it, which is a great showcase for all things BBC, is famously the world's biggest music festival. It was decimated last year. They could only do a sort of shadow version of it. But, but I mean, leave aside the last night of the proms, which is another big brouhaha. But the prom season itself uh, is, is entirely BBC generated. And, you know, that's an incredible achievement. So mm -hmm. uh, I think the music, the music industry is feeling very um, got at at the moment. By Brexit and by COVID, it's been a very toxic combination, and and uh, you know we have to hang on to these crown jewels very very carefully and not let them be chipped away because once once they're gone, they're gone. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. And I I, I wasn't sure if I dare ask because I know you're Scottish, um, and I wondered if you could tell us a bit on that side of the pond how Brexit is going to impact artists. And Paul McCreesh is my guest next week. And so he's going to have much to say on this subject. Um, but I wonder your opinion. Will there be trouble with visas? Is it going to be hard to collaborate across the channel? How's it going to look? The answer is yes to all those questions. It's mm. not, will there be trouble? There is trouble. It's here already. Mm. Already, and it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible, yeah. And, you know, the freedom of movement, which has been taken away from us, it's completely catastrophic for musicians. I mean, on my modest level, where I do one-on-one -on -one recitals, it's bad enough. And it is bad. But imagine if you're in the London Symphony Orchestra, who make a lot of their pennies from touring, 
uh, I mean, what would be involved in terms of visa requirements for a whole orchestra, and and also uh, the instruments being carried would the, the possible, you know, if you've got an old cello or an old violin, which a lot yes. of Yes. Uh, I mean, you just lose the will to live thinking about it, never mind filling out those forms. So, uh, yeah, I'm afraid I, I have not a good word to say about that side of things at all. <laughs> I'm sure Paul will be happy to expand. But no, it's, it's, it's a shit show. I think that's the technical expression. It is, it is a technical term. I agree. <laughs> um, so... Tell us how you got into broadcasting and do you have like a memorable moment from your time at the BBC? Any special guests? Because when you said peers, my mouth just went, oh, you've met him. Uh, who else have you met? What was your special experiences as a broadcaster? Oh, I had lots of, spe- oh gosh, that's a, oh, well, I, I had a, I, I had a show called Voices for 15 years on, on, Oh, sorry, this is my dog barking. Uh, uh, I had a show for 15 years, and uh, which was based on vocal repertoire, and and we did a lot of interviews with uh, with great singers, and um, uh, a lot of the UK-based ones, of course, but also some uh, visiting luminaries. And uh, I interviewed Fischer Dieskau twice. We flew over to Berlin wow. and did an interview with him there, which was absolutely wonderful. And um, I was very scared. I'd been told, oh, he's very scary and he's very grand and uh, you have to be so well prepared and uh, he'll probably be very cold with you. None of that was true. He could not have been more charming or nicer. And he gave us a wonderful interview. And Julia Vardy, his wife, <coughs> his, uh, w- uh, was there and uh, welcomed us. And then we, we came and went in a day. We flew in in the morning to Berlin, jumped in a taxi, got to the house, did the interview, back to the airport, flew home. And uh, in and out, so which is a great way of doing it and economical. Um, but uh, so we arrived kind of late morning, and as just as we were finishing the uh, interview, Varady, who is a great singer in her own right, uh, Varady came in with a tray and she said, "I have made I have made you boys some quiche Lorraine. You must." Be <laughs> so it was so sweet of her. She just couldn't be nicer, and um, he, he gave us a marvelous interview, and uh, he was. He's a pussycat, so yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. So lots of w- wonderful memories like that, and uh, and and just uh, what can I tell you? Well, just little things like, for example, we had different within the program. We had different strands, as they call it in the BBC, different sorts of programs. And one of the pro- one very obvious strand was what we would call spotlights, where we would we would get in a famous singer, Tom Allen or Anne Murray or someone like that and asked them to pick from their own discography records that they either liked or that they wanted to talk about. It wasn't choose singers that they like, it was to specifically talk about them and their experiences and illustrate it with their own recordings. And of course, most singers are very happy talking about themselves for as long as you're prepared to give them. Uh, but uh, <laughs> counter-tender James Bowman came on and we were interviewing him. He's had a very interesting life and he worked with Britain and all the rest of it. And uh, when we were going through his choices, he said, now, Ian, I, I just want to be very clear on this. I don't want to play only my own recordings. He said, I want to leave some space at the end. There are some wonderful younger colleagues coming through, and I want to leave space that we can explore their work. And that was so touching that, you know, he was the only singer who did that. And uh, so there are little moments like that that came, you know, across the path. And that's just, a, it gives you a wonderful sense of musical community, actually. 
That's so true. And I, I really love, um, I think it's called In Tune. Is it oh, yeah. Sean, Sean Rafferty? Rafferty? Yes. Yeah, and he always has such wonderful guests. Um, and that's in the morning when I'm at school. I'm actually um, a year five French teacher as oh, my day job. Oh, so okay. I, I get to put on the music for my class and um, we get to listen to these wonderful British accents in the, in the background. Sean's one of my oldest friends. I'll tell him and he'll be thrilled. <laughs> that's wonderful you mentioned earlier um, that you really love text you love poetry and novels what are you reading right now Ooh. Well, what am I reading I'm reading a collection of essays by Gore Vidal and I'm listening on, Aud on Audible uh, um, the news is so depressing now that when I'm cooking or doing stuck at home things I, I put on audio books rather than Same. it's, it's <laughs> It's the lockdown thing better than reading, I find. And I'm listening to the novel that won the Booker Prize, which is called Shuggy Bane. I don't know if this has reached Canada yet. It's it's a very, very Glaswegian novel that won the Booker Prize. Uh, the first novel by an amazing writer called Douglas Stewart. It's, it's about growing up in a very poor part of Glasgow with uh, an addict mother. And it's very dark and it's very tough, but it's also full of humor. And I cannot recommend it too strongly. It's... Are you from Glasgow originally? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, Celtics or Rangers? Oh, do you know what you're asking there? Do you know the I do. That question? <laughs> I do. I support neither and neither. You're basically asking if am I Protestant or Catholic? And uh, uh, if, technically, I'm Protestant, but uh, I'm practicing in neither capacity. And uh, the. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, um, the religious divide in Glasgow is a very horrible part of its legacy, uh, mm. rather reminiscent of Belfast, and uh, in my view is entirely negative. So, I love Glasgow, I love Scotland, but that is not a happy part of its cultural history. That's true. Um, so the, the last question I kind of had for you, before we go into our final fun round of questions, kind of like to start, um, when I was doing my research for this podcast, you have written about Ivor Gurney. Yeah. And I discovered him recently in a collaborative piano class at the Vancouver Symphony School of Music. We had a collab class. And his arrangement of Down by the Sally Gardens is the most beautiful. Yeah. It's so stunning. Um, tell us how you came to learn more about this distinguished poet and composer. He's from this era of World War I like poets like Rupert Brooke, Wilfred Owen and these composers that were soldiers um, and artists that were soldiers. What a unique time. Can you tell us more about him? Well, I and yeah. So I ended up writing a play about Ivor Gurney. I, I've done various, in my capacity at the Guildhall School, um, I, I've been very lucky in that they, they've let me play around with different concert formats and different dramatic formats. And um, I started putting together a, a program of Gurney Gurney's uh, unique among those distinguished gentlemen you mentioned. Uh, he's interesting in that he's as eminent or as distinguished a poet as he is a composer. He calls himself yes. a maker. And uh, I, I was trying, and his story is very dark. He, he, uh, he had what we would now call mental health issues. They called it neurasthenia. And um, 
he had them all his life and serving in World War I certainly didn't improve that side of things. And he ended his, he ended his days spending uh, the best part of 15 years in a mental asylum violently against his wishes. Ooh. And yeah, where he wrote uh, some amazing songs and a lot, uh, some very disturbed songs and wrote a vast number of poems in pencil. Um, and I started doing a piece I started putting together a kind of thing which combined poems and songs and letters. Although his story is so dark and we see now his life imbued with tragedy, he was actually a very funny, very high energy guy. And he wrote brilliant letters. And so I was putting together this program with letters and poems and songs. And then I started writing links between, between these things. And then I thought, no, that's really boring. That doesn't work, that's gonna be terrible. And then I started writing more links. And then I thought, oh, why don't we bring in another character here? And then I thought, oh, no, you're writing a play. Don't think about it. Just write it. So I just wrote it. And then we, eventually we put it on. And, and I directed it myself. So that that's two jobs that I'm not qualified to do that I just did. And <laughs> we had a great time. We had a fantastic designer who made an amazing set. And, uh, and the guy who played Gurney was a professional actor. They were all singing and piano students taking roles apart from the guy playing Gurney who was a, a professional actor. And it was a very important thing in my life. It, uh, I, I learned a huge amount by doing it and it was very inspiring to do. And um, Gurney, another, just to go back to Gurney himself, another difference between Owen and Sassoon and those guys, they were all officers. Gurney yes. was, was working class and a bit of a lefty. And, and he, was, he, he served with what we call other ranks. He, he was not an officer. And um, so he, his wartime experiences are filtered through a much more working class uh, environment. Hmm. There are other parts of the story there. Um, so I, I, I would commend him to all those very interesting, very interesting uh, work being done at the moment. A big biography is coming out and some poems which have been languish, languishing in the Gloucester City Archive uh, are now being published. There's a huge amount that hasn't been published, and so it's all just coming to life now. It's a very, it's quite a complicated story, but very, very interesting. I'll keep my eyes out for that because I really was touched by his arrangement of "Down by the Sally Gardens," and I where that came from. Yeah. <laughs> read the letters. Don't think of him just as being gloomy and melancholy and and elegiac, because. Um, the, the the letters are hilarious and and also it j just it very very vivid about how um, uh, life in the trenches was. That's wonderful. Um, remind us again the author of the 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 novel from Glasgow. Douglas Stewart. Okay. Shuggy Bain is the name of the book. That is such a Scottish name. Shuggy <laughs> yeah, Shuggy is the uh, nickname for Hugh. Okay. Or Shaggy is the Glaswegian diminutive. And I think I've learned a new word, Glaswegian. Glaswegian, yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. So our final questions, um, if you more were on... Fire. Oh, sorry, go ahead. More quick fire questions? Quick fire questions. If you were on a desert island and you had to take non-classical music with you, what would you bring? Um, well, I, I, I've got a sneaking soft spot for country music. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm, I'm 
woefully ignorant about jazz. So some good jazz of different sorts I would like. Um, I also love the kind of um, Blossom Deary, uh, Cabaret, Supper Club kind of uh, singers. I think they're genius. Um, yeah, that neck of the woods. Oh, and I like some 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 kind of modern folk is is beautiful. Definitely, I would be bringing the BBC recordings of the Beatles. <laughs> you are such a Beatles queen. I, you know what? When I was in grade twelve in high school, I took my birthday money and I went to the local record store when we still had such things, and I bought a CD of the Beatles like number one hits. It was their twenty seven hits that went to number one when we still had CDs and I wore it out so many times I had to buy two more copies. And after that, I was just, I was converted. Um, and our final question is, um, so if you were on a desert Island, which cooking tools would you need to have with you to survive? Oh, well, I need a very sharp knife and I would want an infinite supply of, uh, matches and fire lighters. So I wouldn't have to rub two twigs together to try and build a fire. <laughs> and then I would hope I could somehow or other catch, uh, catch the odd fish and have mm -hmm. delicious grilled fish. But I wouldn't be very good at any of it because I'm just incredibly impractical. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. That's fantastic. Um, it has been such a pleasure and an honor to speak with pianist Ian Burnside. Um, you can catch, I believe, the performance of Interreise from Wigmore is up for like three more days. They keep them up for 30 days. Okay. Um, if not, please check out his recordings. He has a new Winterreise uh, with Roderick Williams on Chandos, if I'm correct. So um, go I'm buy also, a copy. If I can just give a little plug, I'm also doing... I'm doing a streamed recital uh, at the end of the month for the Oxford Leader Festival. Oh, good. Coming up with, with a wonderful Irish soprano, Eilish Tynan. And then I'm doing a day, another, uh, I'm doing three concerts in one day at, at the Wigmore next month, which will be streamed gradually with the young artists from uh, English National Opera, the so-called Harwood artists. So there's nine of them. I'm doing three times three, three recitals with three different singers. Amazing. And, <laughs> and they're, they're really good emerging artists they're wonderful and a very nice bunch of kids so and definitely we recommend anything by oxford leader because sholto has the best tech team in in the game we we watched their fall festival and it was unreal and so many concerts and such beautiful repertoire so we'll keep our eyes open for that right thank you so much it was a, a big pleasure to speak with you Thank and you. have a wonderful rest of the evening in England. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Die Grüße des Fernen ihr zu, all ihre Blumen im Garten gepflegt, wie sie so lieblich am Busen trägt, und ihre Rosen in purpurner Glut, Bächlein der Küche mit kühlen 
Der Flut. Der Flut. 